This New America NYC event took place on July 10th, 2017, and is titled, Who Streets? This event is a part of a social cinema screening series at Tumblr, and features Sabah Foliang, Damon Davis, Rashad Robinson, Opal Tometi, and Jimmy Briggs. invite Sabah and Damon and Rashad up, up front with me. Sabah, Damon, and Rashad. Damon Davis, co-director, producer. Sabah Floyan, director, producer. Rashad Robinson, executive director of Color of Change. First of all, just some business. First, and I'll say it, I'm sure Damon and Sabah will, uh, will say it as well, but um, this is so incredible. It's beautiful to see this much energy. I love it. I love it. August 11th, mark it down right now. Blast it out. August 11th, whose streets open, opens nationwide? We have to turn out that first weekend, then the next weekend, then the next weekend. That first weekend matters. We keep it in theaters. Um, August 11th opens nationally. So please, you know, there's a website. Pass it on, spread the word. August 11th, if you saw it tonight, see it again. Bring family and friends, nephews, nieces, children. Come out, watch it, support it, discuss it, learn from it. Myself, Damon, Sabah, and Rashad will have a conversation. I'll throw some questions out to them, and, and they'll talk about how this film came about, the journey towards making it. Uh, we have Brother Rashad, who will weigh in um, on the work of Color of Change, but also talk about, really help us frame the importance of this document, this movie, and the larger struggle for justice and equity, safety, peace. And then I know there's a lot of energy this evening, and it's, you know, I, this is my fourth time seeing the film, Sabah. Fourth time. Um, which is, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I can, can't stop watching this film. And uh, yeah, it's just, every time I watch it, it gets more visceral, more pieces I didn't, I didn't see the first two times or three times are revealed to me, Damon, and just, I just want to honor you all for making this happen and giving us this, this testament. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the first question, this is for, for Sabah and Damon. If you could just kind of briefly walk us through how Who Streets came about, what was the impetus, how did it start? Um. Yeah, this was a very, very organic process. We definitely didn't say, oh, look, the situation, let's make a documentary. That's what did not happen. I was pre-med, and I was working in New York City doing AmeriCorps, making very little money, and um, going on social media, seeing all the things that were happening in the world. I was a year out of college, so I'm kind of getting awakened or reawakened to life outside of this bubble. And I found myself very frustrated by things that were going on across the US, what was happening in Palestine, all these different situations across the globe and just the sense of powerlessness. So when Mike Brown was killed and I saw people come out into the streets, um, I thought, how can I use my skills to help somehow? And I felt like the way that I could help was to introduce a different perspective into the conversation. So originally I wanted to go there and find grounds for a public health study to say that people and police facing off every single day was gonna have a long-term traumatic effect on the community. So um, I went there um, in the guise of a community service trip with our DP, Lucas, and uh, we, took, we did voting registration and food drives by day, and then by night we would go down to the protest. And I had these pamphlets that I had printed up with all these questions, are you feeling irritable, anxious, depressed? And so once we got there, we realized, of course, this is not the environment to conduct this kind of research. So put the pamphlets back in the trunk, and we just started rolling and asking questions. And, we knew from the beginning that we really wanted to collaborate with someone from the community. And so we would ask anybody who would listen, you want to be a part of this, you want to work with us? Um, and Damon's name came up over and over. He was just completely respected. So about three months in, we went to an exhibit that he was putting on at one of the museums in St. Louis. And 
you know, from then on, we've just been working together. Yeah, it kind of came to me because I'm from there. Oh, it's what it's what I was saying, and <clears throat> I remember in my mind the same way Sabah said, like I had to use the skills that I had to 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 get in the mix, and so um, I remember the first day when when Michael Brown was actually killed. I was teaching kids at this art expo, and I was I was a town over. And uh, one of my friends who was also teaching at the thing, he said that the kids just got shot in Ferguson and people are gathering. And that was before the word protest was being used. That was before all of that, you know what I mean? So it was just like, it, it, it was, um, I didn't, nobody really understood what, what was about to occur. And I remember um, I didn't get out there until like the third day. And when I got out there, I just saw that the thing, things was completely different from what the news was saying about people and how they was interacting. So I went out there and I never went back in. And I used everything I had to just try to help. And I, I was an artist. That's what I did as a profession. And that's what I did in the movement. I made the posters. I did the flyers. I helped throw the shows. I used whatever I had. And uh, and like I said, I was curating the show about the first two weeks of the, of the, uh, the protest. And um, they came. And I met them, and um, we 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 continued. She she uses courtship, the word courtship, and uh, one another. Uh, courtship stalker shit. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. We just kept rapping, and um, like the more and more we got to know each other, we had a lot of similar background, a lot of similar. Uh, the analysis was the same, and uh, we both wanted to make sure that uh, somebody black got to tell the story about what happened to black people. So that was one of the main things that we uh, we came together on. Rashad, what's the, the importance, what's the role of, of a documentary film, of, of a testament that is Whose Streets to the larger struggle? I mean, this is, you know, Whose Streets is something that I suspect will be timeless, a timeless piece of a, not an artifact, but a living, breathing, teaching narrative 10, 15, 20, 25 years from now. Why is it important? I mean, I know Color of Change, you, you can talk about it. Color of Change has done a lot of work on representation in Hollywood, the media, how people of color, um, how non-white people, how females are seen in the media. Um, can you just speak to speak to that that work you're doing at Clever Change, but also why whose streets matters now? Yeah. So you know, first this is my second time seeing it, and I saw a sizzle reel. We were on a panel together maybe like two years ago or something in D.C. Um, when you're still in like raising money, and um, I just want to say first of all, thank you. Thank you for telling these stories. Thank you for putting yourselves um, out there as someone who was out in the streets um, many nights, who had staff members and colleagues out in the street who recognized all the faces. The, this is not an easy story to tell. Um, and there will be many folks who have all sorts of things about, you should have said this, so you should have told this, or there are pieces here that are not here. But um, the point around black people being able to tell our own stories and um, being able to not just um, tell our stories, but to be visible and powerful and authentic through those stories. And to tell a full picture is so incredibly important. And that, for us, is one of the key ingredients to how we build the type of change that's, that's, that's possible and the type of change that we need. In Color of Change, we think a lot about the difference between presence and power. Um, presence is visibility and it's awareness. It's people talking about things. It's retweets. And power is the ability to change the rules. And sometimes those rules are the written rules of policy and sometimes those are the unwritten rules of culture, of who is respected and how folks are respected. It's illegal to kill unarmed black people, technically, right? So we talk about all the new laws and I heard so many people call Color of Change or Black Lives Matter or so many other groups, what policy demands do you have? And I'm like, well, yeah, there are policy demands, but in and of itself, this is an issue about how people are seen as full humans. And you can lay as many policies over a culture that does not value people as full humans, and you will not get different results. And so the importance of people who tell our stories, who raise visibility, who amplify voices and stories, is so critical to changing the culture that we live in and changing hearts and minds. Before the film, I mean, as, as uh, Beth said previously, both Damon and I are from the St. Louis area. And, um, you know, just speaking for myself, I mean, I know Damon has certain emotions too. We talked about it in St. Louis over lunch and dinner. 
it was triggering, it was familiar, but still traumatizing, you know, uh, to watch Michael Brown lay on the ground in the heat, August heat for four and a half hours. You know, for most of that time he was uncovered. So you had families of kids walking by, seeing the body of an 18 year old male, with a little bullets just kind of slowly cooking in the sun. And then you know, the, the, the aftermath, the response with the, the uprising, the protest, um, the limited rioting. I mean, there was, you know, I think one of the things this film does for me, which I think is so critical for all of us, is that it really kind of frames, you know, the, the, the property destruction that happened with the quick trip and so forth in context. I mean, it wasn't, you know, everyone, everyone most of the majority of people were not violent. They were not breaking things. It was a small number. Most people were marching peacefully, strategically, as, as Tepo said. No one wanted more guns out there, more tear gas, more shotguns going off. Um, you know, and for me, you know, I, I'm getting to a point, you know, it's interesting because having been a journalist and then watching, you know, Sabah and Damon, this is the first doc, full-length documentary film, by the way, the first feature-length film that premiered at Sundance this year. Give it up, please. Um, you know, Sundance premiere, I mean, national release with Magnolia. It, you know, I, I, like I said, I've seen it four times. It seems eerily familiar. It's a boss from Los Angeles originally. I, you know, one of my first stories as a journalist was covering the LA riots in 92. So 25 years later, you know, and Sabah can speak to this more personally than I can, you know, we're seeing this happen again. You know, um, African-American man violated in the case of Rodney King, killed in the case of Michael Brown. Violence erupts, people pay attention. But when the fire goes out, everyone leaves. Attention, attention's taken somewhere else. And whose streets really kind of, for me, one of the, one of the critical things I did among many was stay there and tell the story. The fire had gone out, the celebrities and out, the, the visitors left. Saban Damon stayed and told the story that had to be told, the aftermath, what happened after the protests and the riotings. Um, and I, you know, one of the things too, I just, you know, I, I didn't know if it was a week, I didn't realize. August 9th, 1997, for those of you who were who living in New York or from New York, August 9th, 1997, Abner Louima was assaulted, sodomized, with a, with, a, with a broom handle in Brooklyn. So August 9th, 1987, Abner Louima assaulted here. August 9th, 20, 2014, Michael Brown shot six times, including one shot, to, two shots to the head, six times, laid out on the ground. So these stories continue. You know, you know we forget the names. It's too many names to remember sometimes. We forget the names, the shootings, the chokeholds, the multiple gunshots, it keeps happening over and over again. And I guess, you know, I, I say that because I want to ask Sabah, Damon, and Rashad, what's the call to action with a film like Cruise Streets? I mean, we have 200 plus people in this space. What, what's your vision? What are they supposed to do when they leave here? You've educated, you've given them the, the resources, the stories, the imagery. You peeled off the layers of, of Ferguson as a community. Now what? That's a big question, right? Uh, I personally, me and Sabai, I, 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 I don't know if I can speak for both of us, but me personally, I just want black people to see the beauty and majesty in themselves. And uh, instead, I, this is not a ploy, <clears throat> this is not a, a piece for white people to come around after 500 years and notice, you know, what they're doing and feel, you know, and feel bad and change. I, I, don't, I don't even know if that's possible um, with the current state of things, you know what I'm saying? But for a second, black folks can see themselves in power, whatever power may mean to you, but black folks can see themselves and be proud and, um, and, and, and you know, just have something to hold on to and get you up out of the bed in the morning, you know what I'm saying? So like, that's the call to action for me. It's going directly, you know, to my people. And I hope y'all, you know, I hope y'all feel good. You know what I'm saying? So that, that's me personally. I have mixed feelings about this question because on the one hand, it's such a privilege to be able to share this space with all of you. And of course we've made this movie, which was definitely no easy task and took a lot of really talented people. And at the same time, you know, if you asked me how to make a documentary, I could give you a set of steps. But as far as how to live your life and how to respond to this, I think that answer is gonna be different for each person. It's gonna depend on where you stand what your circle of influence is, what your concerns and your passions are, 
And so all I can say, you know, this is something that's been on my mind lately, is stop seeking comfort. Like, it's, it's not that, you know, that pursuit that of getting more comfortable, getting peace of mind, is probably not for us in this lifetime, unfortunately. And I, I know that sounds cynical, and I don't mean don't have joy, don't live abundantly. I think live very passionately, but just know that comfort and contentment, it might not be here for us. There may not be no, an easy way. There may not be, you know, smoothness in the future for us, especially not with the direction that the climate is going. Like, we have a whole lot that we have to reckon with, and I think a lot of times we use whether or not it feels okay, whether or not we feel good in the moment as like a meter of whether or not things are working. And so I'm just, you know, advocating to everyone, move toward the discomfort, move out of your comfort zone, know that, you know, if you don't feel all right about the way things are, that's natural, because there's so many people who can't feel all right. And until we can all feel comfortable, none of us should be trying to feel comfortable. You know, I think I want to do everything I can to make sure that people see this film. So I think that that is um, the first and foremost start because I think that the more eyes on this film, the better and the better for the conversations and telling the story the right way. Um, and one of the things I really thought about as I was like watching familiar faces, some who I'm still in contact with, some who I, I only see on social media, um, is that the, what was different about what happened in Ferguson, and as, a, as someone who leads an organization that's oftentimes responding to these moments and trying to help people oftentimes who are not living in that area make sense of it and figure out what they can do, how they can move their energy politically, who they can make demands on. I thought about a couple of things. First, um, it does go back to that presence to power frame. Um, and it goes back to, as I was watching um, Jay Nixon, a Democrat that could not have been elected without black people's votes, that could not have been elected without good liberals' votes in Missouri not feel any need to respond um, to what was happening on the ground, that we can't have the political discussions that we're having in this country and this binary Democrat versus Republican, good versus bad, and that we have to build independent political power for black people and for oppressed people that hold whoever is in office accountable. And the sort of issues that I saw sort of play themselves out on screen were issues of um, folks feeling like black votes are present, but black people are not powerful when they need them. The second thing I thought about was how much this movement has actually produced some real results as well. And this movement has built energy, for instance, all around the country where people in this last election showed up in thousands to text voters in places where they didn't live to help kick out bad district attorneys. And my organization and others worked to kick out seven bad district attorneys all around the country. And the movement that was birthed in Ferguson absolutely had an impact on district attorneys being kicked out in places like Orlando and Chicago and um, Houston and just most recently in Philadelphia where people showed up fighting back and, elect and helped to elect a district attorney who represented Black Lives Matter and Occupy um, as a civil rights attorney. And so there was changes happening, but how we translate that energy and how we think about um, showing up over the next couple of years will be really important. So I think, one, see the film, but think about how are you responding locally? Where are you putting your energy? What type of um, political institutions are you supporting? And are they just about politics as usual, or are they about building power for the most vulnerable people? And then I would say that as we head into this next election cycle, and there's a whole lot of conversations around you know, taking back the House of Representatives or the Senate or all these kind of political issues, which are important and I'm not minimizing. We have to be thinking about locally who controls people's safety and justice. And what are we doing in our communities? There's a district attorney's race right in Brooklyn. There's a district attorney's race that probably won't be happening in Manhattan because no one's running against the incumbent. But all of these are things that you can do right here in New York City to show up around changing the dynamics and changing the power for the most vulnerable people. One last question, for, for primarily for Sabah and Dana, but also for Rashad as well, and then we'll open up. And I can feel the energy people want to ask questions and get a response. Um, it's another, another big question, but you know, this is something I've been grappling with for the past couple of years since Michael Brown was killed and going back and forth from Missouri and Ferguson. 
And that is, and Rashad made reference to it, what does, this is an individual question, individual answer, but what does the movement, Black Lives Matter, racial justice movement, equality movement, what does the movement, if anything, owe Ferguson, the community of Ferguson? I mean, this, this August will be three years since Michael Brown was killed, and then Sabah and Damon touched upon it, if they helped to talk about it in the film, you know, I can tell you right now, three years later, majority of residents in Canfield are gone. You know, David, not David was the only one who got evicted. <laughs> majority of residents in Canfield are gone because of uh, eviction, due to arrest, or not being able to pay rent because they were protesting, sacrificing their jobs. People were pushed out for whatever reason. Um, Ferguson, uh, sorry, Canfield has become a shell of what it was when Michael Brown was killed. There's a black police chief, black city manager, black prosecutor, black city attorney. Um, this past year, there was an opportunity to elect the first black person, a woman actually, a black woman, who's a city council member, opportunity to elect her as Mayor Ferguson. The votes weren't there. The same mayor who was mayor when Michael Brown was killed, James Knowles, who you saw in the movie, he's still mayor. You know, the, the divide is still there. West Florissant, where the majority of the protests took place, where you saw the tear gas, the barricades, is still struggling to recover economically. You know, there's been progress for sure with the consent of the DOJ, and there's been progress for sure. But, you know, Darren Seals, who, um, who was honored in the film, he was in the film, The Brother with Dreads, and then in credits, he was, uh, Damon Sabah recognized that <clears throat> Darren was killed, shot in the head, burned alive in his car uh, not too long ago, last year actually. And, you know, I, I didn't know Darren well. I mean, we spoke, uh, we spoke a handful of times. Damon was him, knew him as it's Sabah. And one of the things Darren said often was he talked about accountability, leadership, that Ferg the Fer Fergusonians, Ferguson resident stakeholders, had to be masters of the fate of Ferguson. And, you know, three years later, you've had you know, Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray, Jordan Edwards, Philando Castile. It keeps going on and on. We, our focus has shifted. But Ferguson, Ferguson, you know, the consensus is Ferguson was the, 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 the incident, the movement, the uprising that catalyzed Black Lives Matter. And the question I still wrestle with myself, me personally, is, you know, the, you know, the fire is out in Ferguson, it's still smoking, it's simmering. What is the movement of Ferguson? The people who still have to exist there when the cameras leave. Uh, Jimmy Bridge, I want to thank you for asking that question. No one ever asked that question, you know? I just really appreciate that. Um, I think the, the movement of Ferguson, the truth, I think, I think that's what everybody owes Ferguson. It's just the truth about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And, um, and the truth about what you prepare to do, you know what I'm saying? Like, what you're going to do for people and, and how you're going to operate in the world. And that's been something that's been very, very important to us throughout this entire process, is being truthful with these people. You know what I'm saying? And, being, and, and, and showing care and respect to what's going on, whether it be the family, whether it be the people that live in Ferguson. It's just been, a, in a, it keeps me up at night, to be real with you. You know what I'm saying? Because I got to go back there and... and and I think I think the truth means a lot of different things. And I don't know if it's like if 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 you getting getting something from it, you know, giving it back to people in Ferguson. But I think the the main thing is to ask the people because I'm not a resident of Ferguson. I'm, I was born and raised in East St. Louis. I live in South St. Louis, and I went out to Ferguson. I think that that question is for those people that still have to struggle out there. And what what do they think they owe? You know what I mean? But from where I stand, I think that's what we owe them, if nothing else, is the truth. And that's what we try to do in this movie, to tell the truth about what happened. You know what I mean? Because it's just like, you know, people remember Harlem, and they remember Watts, but until Selma was a movie, you know what I'm saying, you don't hear, you don't hear about those, the places where we come from in the middle. You know what I mean? And so I think that the truth is very important. I think, and I, th I think that's, that's what we try to do, and that's what we owe those people, at least us, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I second that wholeheartedly, and I think to get a little bit more specific about what that means, um, a lot of us who have the opportunity to sort of pontificate about what racism is, how it works, who it affects, what the next steps are, a lot of us are people who are actually shielded from those very same impacts. And so what I saw in Ferguson and what drew me there was it was the same as what I saw in South Central LA. And it was that part of LA that doesn't get talked about. What you see on television of LA has no resemblance to my childhood whatsoever at all. 
And so I think what we also owe, owe Ferguson is to be honest about the intersections of race and class that are present. And when we're talking about, when we're making these intellectual, you know, when we're talking about property damage and what, tac what tactics are appropriate and which are not, you know, what we really hope to do with this film was to demonstrate that this is not happening on that theoretical level. These are not people who are trying to prove a point. This is a, a group of people who is physically being pushed down, literally, not conceptually, not in the form of a microaggression, not an intellectual slight, literally being physically repressed, trying to go out into their yards. And a lot of us have no idea what that's like. And so when he talks about we owe Ferguson the truth, I think we gotta be honest about when we have no idea what that's like and how are we using our access and our ability to converse about these things in order to lift the experiences and perspectives of people who do know what that real repression is like. Because as the saying goes, you know, first it came for us, then they'll come for you. So what's, what is now very strange and unfamiliar could be commonplace in the next decades. And if we don't take the opportunity now to listen to the people who know what it's literally like, we're going to cost everybody an opportunity. So just figuring out ways to really center that leadership in our conversation. Uh, let's open it up. I mean, just raise up hands and maybe I get some help with picking out who's first. Thank you. And please, just questions, no, no comments or reflections. I'm not going to make a speech. Okay. It's a question for Jimmy. You said I your truth. Yeah, the names are messed up, though. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, <laughs> what's the name? <laughs> Rashad. Okay, so maybe, sorry. Uh, see how media can be misleading, yeah, right? The question, follows your first comment, you know, that uh, the dominant culture is such that changes in laws, legislation, et cetera, have very little impact, basically, unless you change dominant culture. The question is, how do you change dominant culture? Through grassroots work? Or so I, I, mean, I, think, I think changing dominant culture is about, is about building power for the most vulnerable people. And I think that is oftentimes about, it's about building the type of power that makes decision makers nervous. I think about, the founding of Color of Change, which was 11 years ago. It was similar to um, Ferguson in that 11 years ago, in the aftermath of the flood that was Hurricane Katrina, black people were literally on their roofs demanding the government do something, and they were left to die. And, um, and so, what I'll say, so what I'll say about that is that that was not an issue. There were a whole bunch of issues that everyone knew about. Geographic segregation, generational poverty, the impacts of climate, and criminal justice, but at the heart of it, no one was nervous about disappointing black people. The government wasn't nervous, corporations weren't nervous, media wasn't nervous. And so when institutions are not nervous about disappointing your community, when decision makers are not nervous whatsoever, when Jay Nixon is not nervous, then that is not an issue of like finding the, the policy solution. It's magical thinking that we oftentimes have, that we can create the sort of right report that illustrates all the issues, um, without people power and without disruption, and that suddenly someone's going to read the report and be like, oh, we're going to fix this 500-year problem. Or that someone's going to create an app, um, and that somehow that app is going to like somehow solve the problems of inequality. Or someone's going to create a nonprofit, and that somehow that nonprofit is going to... We're not going to code our way or research our way or nonprofit executive direct our way out of any of these problems, it will be people power and narrative change, and that's sort of what I would say. Um, I see here, here, here. I, I, I'm sorry, I, one question for Mike, I'm, I'm sorry, no. Um, the brother up here, yeah, and then we'll come down, come down here. Hi, this is just a two-part question. The first part is I was curious to know about uh, some of the people that were in the film, so the female couple and the, uh, the young man who used to walk around with the camera. I just wanted to hear about how they're doing right now. And um, second part of the question is, is a portion of the profits gonna be going toward, you know, helping out some of the families or going to any charities? Just curious to know how you guys are gonna be helping with the profits. Yeah, um, so to the second part of your question, yes, we definitely are going to try to create some sort of fund. Um, similar to one that we actually benefited from when we first started the project, where we'll have an application process available to people in St. Louis who are doing work and you know give small micro grants in that way. As far as how people are doing, 
Brittany was acquitted of all her charges. She's still working as a nurse. Yeah, um, which is huge. And David is actually working on his, doing some of his own documentary work. He's done some work around Standing Rock and is continuing to travel all around the country teaching people cop watch and filming. Who else had questions? Raise your, raise your hand so I can see. Yes, sir. Uh, the film focuses a little bit on how people are impacted by the sacrifice they made to be out there in protest. And of course, we know that people uh, lost their lives. Darren and Edward were just two names that have really impacted and who have been lifted up in the last year. So I'm wondering if you can say more about how other people, I, mean, I know this was sort of the last question about how people are doing, but can you talk some more about how um, this has impacted the people that were involved, but their, their health, their wellness, their mental health, and has there been any effort to check in on those folks uh, a little bit more and make sure that they're doing well. Yeah, uh, I can speak to that. It was six different people that were, that were killed in cars that uh, had something to do with this case. And Ed was the last, like, the last person to die in that way. He was not uh, killed from what his family said and everything like that. So I don't want to make any speculation about that case. I personally, everybody I know is not unscathed. You feel what I'm saying? Everybody I know is carrying something. And I do check on, I check in on people because I live there. I see a lot of these people, and these people are like lifelong friends to me now. If I didn't know them before that, um, it's hard to keep up with everybody. And some people, I guess specifically not trying to be kept up with and not trying to stay in this place that hurt a lot of people. I can only speak for myself. Like, police was out in front of my house. Same thing happened. It didn't just happen in Ferguson. All of St. Louis, the police were under unified command, and whenever a protest happened, they came down and they bared down on people. So it's good, like sleep loss, you know, just the, like normal mental health issues. People, people are much more, uh, not normal, that's not normal, but like people are much more volatile and, uh, and it's just like all we, gotta, all we can do is lean on each other. The same thing black folks have been doing since the beginning. You feel what I'm saying? So I know some people have, uh, like Brittany talks about it openly, about like actually going to see a doctor and stuff like that. And I have friends like my friend Shiraz, who's, that's her main ministry. She's just trying to get people's mental health together. But uh, yeah, I can't, I'm not going to sit here and lie and say that everybody okay, because they're not. You know, it's a, people have real serious PTSD. And, and everybody, people just, it manifests different in different people. But, every, but if, if you are out there, I don't think you're the same at all. Nobody that I know. That's included. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I'm sure, like, I won't tell you, like, I got sleep loss. Like, they was in front of my house and, and night, nightmares and shit like that. You know what I'm saying? It's that, you know, and, and it wasn't the first time interaction with police, but that, that's a whole nother level, especially with, like, that, it looks very close. It looks even closer when you're standing right there. Straight up. So, yeah, we, we definitely got our own problems. But again, we got to lean on, we leaning on each other. That's all we got. We have time. For, we have a few more questions. Um, I just want to, first of all, recognize um, some Aaron Velarde from Vote Run Lead is here. And Vote Run Lead actually, while, while not formally a part of Black Lives Matter, did go to St. Louis and did help women candidates learn how to run for office and register voters. So I just want to honor that. And also we had a group of women who were leave from Hala in Brooklyn. Louis Tapia from Blackboard Rise is here still. Um, I think you know what, what Damon and Sabah are saying is critical. The community trauma, the individual trauma, but also the intersectionality. Um, quickly, one of the things that, that stood out for me this, this recent viewing is the gender lens. You know, we saw it at the beginning of the film when David is, is kind of like getting his little boy to toughen up, you know, fight me, fight me, and the little boy wants to hug him. And for me, that was just so indicative of how people of color feel you know, you have to like drum out that sensitivity, that softness, that love. You know, he wanted, he wanted his son to be a warrior, a fighter, not come hug him. And I think, I just want to thank, thank you, Saban Damon, for including that, because I'm like, we don't talk about that enough, the movement are among people of color. So we have a brother over here in the beard with the glasses, and then back here in the middle, and then. Hi. Uh, so I have one of these hard how questions. So uh, I, I really appreciated the theme in the movie of, the, of young people, especially the young, young kids being involved and the focus on this idea of raising up a generation, right? Um, which is the theme in the, the Declaration of Independence, which I appreciated as well. How do we do that? How do we retool our institutions, our social institutions, our 
our political institutions, as was mentioned. I mean, you know, Cornell Brooks is up there doing his, his preacher thing, and I appreciate Cornell Brooks, but he stepped down, right? And the NAACP is retooling, right? So how do we, the generation right now that is becoming sort of positionally powerful, how do we retool these institutions? Um, that's a great question and a big question. I'm going to start because I'm sure Rashad probably has something much more brilliant than myself to say. Look at marinate. So don't want to follow that act, but um, you know, I heard a I heard a question earlier about the dominant culture and how do we shift the dominant culture. And I think that what really has to happen is we have to abandon the idea of dominant culture because violence will always be the extreme expression of dominance. So figuring out what that means, you know, that's a whole different practice. I think I was in London and I, I was noticing how deeply ingrained some things are. Some little kids walked by me and they were speaking in their, you know, not accents because I'm in London. But I was just struck by how smart I felt like they must be for just how they're, you know, speaking in their regular language. But, you know, I say that to say how deeply ingrained our ideas about one another are. And those are the ideas that are at the root of all of this. And so if we really want to see holistic change, it's going to start with understanding our impulse in the moment. It's going to be something much more holistic, much more psychological. This is much less of a legislative problem than it really seems and much more of a psychology of how can you stand in front of someone who is also human and do the types of things that, that have played out. And we talk a lot about the trauma that happens on black bodies as a result of being victims of oppression. We don't talk about the fact that what does it do to you to see yourself as separate from you know, X, Y, and Z person and think that certain acts are justified on your own behalf. How does that warp your spirit and your, your humanity? Those are the kind of conversations I think have to happen in the long term, even while we're building politics on a local level and fighting for the physical safety of our communities and our food and our health and all that. I guess I would, what I would say was, first of all, that was a very generous showing of how you show that, that um, the church service, because um, I was in the room, and, I, and you were too, Gina, and um, Gina Belafonte of Sankofa. Um, org and they were not as nice to him as like there it got it got it, it he got pushed off the stage as did a number of other civil rights legends who came to Ferguson at different points and decided they were gonna you know call people to a church or call people or show up at the end of the march and decide to speak and I sort of watched that from the side um, I don't think we always have to retool institutions sometimes things need to die. And, I, and I'm not saying that the, like, and I'm not saying that about any specific institution as someone who grew up in some of these institutions and benefited from them, but I think that we spend too much time trying to um, hold tight to some sort of tradition or legacy instead of creating what we need in the moment and building the type of institutions and the type of advocacy that serves us. And I think when they don't serve us anymore, we have to build new things. And I think that that is one of the challenges that we've had with the democracy that we have now, which was built for a very different time, a different era, and, and a different set of needs um, and goals. And if we spend all of our time trying to re retool the institutions that are failing us now, we will not have the innovation and brilliance to build the things we actually need for the future. Um. My, my question was answered already. I just wanted to say that I was really struck by the scene where you have Brittany getting her antidepressant me medicine. And uh, I guess my question was just more about like, the invisible psychological trauma that we go through and like, what, it, what it means to constantly be bombarded with images of violence against black bodies on social media or museum biennials. And I uh, just wanted to get all of your response on that, but that was very, it was already addressed, so. Is there anything else you want to say? And Sabah, if you, have, if, you, if you had a chance to go back to Ferguson and try to do the work that you originally wanted to do, what, what that's been like? Yeah, no, I haven't gotten a chance to get back into that particular work of investigating the trauma on a clinical level. Um, this has been a nonstop process. And I also, I think I've found a bit more of, of what my lane is professionally. And I feel like as a storyteller, I can bring a lot more um, to the world. But I do believe from observing, I have been back as a person and I'm still in touch with all good people. 
And I do believe that my hypothesis is right. I do believe that there has been a long-term traumatic effect. I do believe that people are suffering from, you know, what happens when you go into flight or fight mode for that long. And that's the psychological thing that happens to, to black people. When you see somebody that looks like you, you are living vicariously that experience. You are Philando Castile's partner. You are that little girl in the car. You are all of those people. And it, and it takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on your, your psyche. I think there was some internet meme that came up and it was like, I need to call in black today. But like, we know that that's a real thing. Like, we know that there are days when it's just hard to even move your body because of the level of trauma. So I think it's really, really important for us to be honest about that. And one of the reasons that scene was so important to me is because I felt like it's critical to be honest about the fact that we're human. We are not indestructible. We are not, and I'm, we're not advocating some kind of superhero stance where you just take all of this on and expect there not to be any consequences. No, this is a deep, deep sacrifice that it takes in order to, to try to fight this or even just survive it, let alone fight it. And um, that is something that I would like to, to get back into, at least figuring out ways to bring some kind of support and some kind of you know healing conversation spaces, whatever the case may be. I'm sorry, Dan. No, I was just going to say I agree. You know, and I, I hope that this movie makes that space. A lot of these people, I'm excited for August 11th when I get home. It's going to put a bunch of people in a room that don't even talk to each other anymore. And hopefully for a second, they remember where we was at. You know? So I hope, I hope this movie gives room to have that he some kind of healing or some kind of reconnection, you know? The only thing I want to say to that is that um, um, the last several years of um, viral videos and uprisings have really challenged me as someone who runs an organization that, you know, 85% of my staff is black. You know, 70% is probably millennial. And people are seeing folks that look like them killed and then coming to work and having to re build a response for other people to respond and having to do it in real time and quickly and having to, having people tag us in social media when something happens, like, um, hey, did you see this? What's color change gonna do about it? And, you know, all times of the day. And, and how to make sense of that in a world where there are no um, boundaries to um, how people can access you, when they can access you, what information shows up on your feed or doesn't show up on your feed. Um, and so the real-time impacts of people who are just experiencing this every day and then to have people who showed up for a job, a career, a passion, and a vision that has changed very drastically just in a couple of years in terms of what people expect out of folks in this sort of moment that we're in and trying to figure out um, how to do that effectively. And that's been both, both a, a sort of a deep learning for me and no like answers or theories, but just to say that it's an ongoing thing that I think folks are gonna have to increasingly be sensitive to as, as we continue to be hit and desensitized with more and more information that should shock us and should make us angry and may not anymore. We have one last question before we wrap up. I just want to add something that's posting out there. Maybe it should have done earlier. Kind of a response to what you were saying, Rashad, which I agree with a lot of what you were saying previously. You know, for me personally, um, maybe because I'm not a millennial, it's been a while since I was a millennial, but uh, that age group. But, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I was not there when uh, Cornell Brooks was pushed off the stage, it was documented in the film. One of the things I think we have to be careful about, those of us who are in the movement or supportive of the movement or want to bear witness to the movement, is um, also, you know, recognizing and holding and honoring history, honoring the past. And, and because I feel like, you know, I have a number of, you know, growing up, I have a number of, one of my best friends is a pastor in St. Louis. And I know through him, I, I know how the clergy by and large failed. They failed. They failed in St. Louis. They failed Ferguson. They weren't there. They weren't protecting people. They weren't ministering to people when they needed it. They're being tear gassed and beaten. So I know that that happened. That failure happened. It wasn't just the clergy. It was national mainline institutions as well. But I think one of the things we have to recognize, and I'm not saying you, you disagree with that, but I think we have to recognize as viewers of Hoosh Streets and people who care about these issues is that um, there are lessons to be drawn from you know, what the clergy had to offer in the 60s and 70s and 50s. There was to be drawn from what the Panthers did in the 70s and 60s. I think, one of, you know, and, and Tef Post said it in the film, 
this is not your daddy's revolution. I, I would posit that it is, it's not our daddy's, daddy's revolution, but it's a chapter in the struggle. You know, and the struggle was the Black Panthers, the struggle was, you know, the Pullman Porters, the struggle was, you know, the Black Panther Freedom Party in Mississippi. That's all part of the journey, you know. And I think, you know, one of the things this film, I think, does, again, is, which is so important, is capture that history and hold it for the generations behind us. When we're gone, they can look at Hootie Street and say, okay, this is what it was in 2014, in the 2010s. How can we take those lessons, those mistakes, and move it forward? Lewis, last question. You, last almost, question. you almost took my question, Jimmy. Okay, sorry. Speaking of age, on, on similar veins, and really I think the word legacy comes up for me, in the film, there's, there is that, that poignant part where the uh, folks start chanting, let the young people speak. And there's also the closing part of the film where Brittany's daughter gets the mic and she gets to recite Asada Shakur's quote. For you and, and this film and for us, how do we allow, create, give space to the voice of young people? And how do you see this film as a portal to that, as a tool, as fill in the blanks? Uh, okay. Uh, you know, I, I think we the young people, I mean, I ain't, I ain't super young, you know. <laughs> What I'm saying, like, I, th I think we the young people, but I, I think that the, um, this is what I have learned throughout Ferguson and interact intersectionality and learning these new words and all of this and, and, um, and other people's point of view. What I have learned um, from some very caring friends of mine is to not tell other people what they need and maybe asking them what they want and what they need. So the way that I think we could, we could do things for kids that's younger than me is to ask them how they need. What, what, what platform they need, what vehicle they need, offer resources and move out the way. That, and that's what the problem was in Ferguson. And, that, and that's, where, that's where people was bumping heads at, is that, that holding on to the reins, like, like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, you could come, you, you, know, we'll let, you know, we'll let you do this, but I'm not letting go of the reins. And I, and I, and I agree with what you were saying about, um, just about history, but I, I, one thing that bothers me is that like, if we looking at history, depending on from which side of history you're looking at it, and, and, and I think it's very important on how we remember history, because Dr. King was not popular with the clergy. And the same, the clergy didn't show up this time, they didn't show up that time. They're like, you know what I mean? Like, like, and, and I think because we remember it a certain way, then, we, then, then people are misguided when, it's, when it comes back around to you and you think that you're, doing, you're not doing something different. And, I, and, and so I just, I think it's very important for us to remember the way that these people that we hoist up as heroes were not popular. That's why they did. You feel what I'm saying? Like, like, they, like people was not rocking with what they was doing. And, 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 and I think that I hope that we have created some kind of time capsule to show in real time, like with the camera being held by people that was living it, that now nah, you're not going to be popular and you're going to get kicked out of your house and you're going to catch a felony and they're going to be watching you. And you know what I mean? And just like understanding what you're getting into, that this ain't a, this ain't a movie. That was a movie. You know what I'm saying? But this, I think it's very important to like keep that. I got off on another tangent. I'm sorry, bro. But you, you feel what I'm saying? Like get out the way. Let people do, like ask people what they need and get out the way. That's what I think. I think, yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think this is a whole, this is something I'm very passionate about and it's like a whole nother project. But we, we are really drastically underestimating kids right now, um, especially because they're way smarter than we were when we were kids. Anybody who was born when the internet was already invented is gonna be exponentially smarter. And the conversations that I've had with high school students, I'm like, Jesus, like, we actually should be engaging young people in political discourse actively and not as like a patronizing exercise, but because they have a lens that we need. Um, and so that's a whole nother you know, conversation. But, that line, I like your daddy, uh, this ain't your daddy's civil rights movement. I like that line in the film because it does make people a little bit uncomfortable and I think it does make people who may have been part of the civil rights movement or part of an older generation feel like, well, hey, wait a minute, you know, I had a struggle too. And the reality is, of course, we know that. We are absolutely standing in all of the labor of our ancestors and all the labor of our parents. But there is that little, that, that little bone to pick and I think it's what the activists in this film are struggling not to do is that kind of forgetting that happens in between these cycles and things get a little bit comfortable, jobs get a little easier to get, money's a little easier to come by. Now all of a sudden we're getting raised to believe that if we just dress okay and you know perform a certain way, then, this, then everything is gonna be all right. And we came out into the world and realized, hold up, 
this is another story. And so the movement went from being one that said, I am a man, you know, and, and I'm in a tuxedo, and you can recognize me by the symbols that you use to define a human, to fuck you, fuck the police, I'm alive, I'm here, get with it, you know, or get out of the way, and you, you know, you're gonna have to kill me before you get me to sit down. And that's the progression that we've gone through, the frustration and the pressure that we're facing. I think that's where that line comes in from, is like we're, we've moved beyond wanting kind of civil rights in that sense, and we're asking for everything. We're asking for the whole package. We're asking for full humanity. Yeah. Right. Last word, Daniel, you got it. Yeah, I just want to amend, <laughs> I just want to amend one thing, because I got a call this morning about people thinking you dissing the clergy in the movie and shit like that. So I just want to, I want to make sure that I say that not, it wasn't like in a complete absence. Like it was people like Reverend Sekou, Starsky, Benita, yeah, like they like them people, they did come out there, you know what I'm saying? And there were elders there, but I just want to say that for myself, because I actually got called early about that. So yeah, like, you know, it's not it's not a complete diss, but I just like, it ain't a popular stance to get out there and put your put your body and your heart on the line, and, and that's the reason why we hoist these, these, that's why people are heroes, because they do what everybody else can't do. You know what I'm saying? We'll close it there. Thank you so much for coming out. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.